relational databases provide durable transaction systems for storing data. The relational model has existed for decades, but the requirements for a relational database have changed. Modern applications have requirements for high volumes of data that do not fit into a single machine. When a database gets too big to fit on a single machine, that database needs to be sharded into smaller subsets of the data. These database shards are spread across multiple machines, and as the database grows, the database can be resharded to scale to even more machines. And to ensure durability, a database needs to be replicated, so all of the shards of a database also need to be replicated. The database needs to be able to survive any single machine losing power or getting destroyed. Sharding and replication allow a relational database to be scalable, durable, and highly available. There are many ways to build sharding and replication into a database. Kartik Ranganathan and Siddharth Choudhury are engineers with Yugabyte DB, a distributed SQL database. In today's episode, we discuss the modern requirements of a distributed SQL database, and we compare the applications of distributed SQL to those of other systems such as Cassandra and Hadoop. We also talk through the competitive market of cloud-based distributed SQL providers, such as Google Cloud Spanner and Amazon Aurora. Yugabyte DB is an open-source database that competes with those other relational databases, but Yugabyte DB is not a cloud provider itself. So it's a great discussion point for the ongoing uh, discussion of open-source companies versus the major cloud providers. Full disclosure, Yugabyte DB is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. I want to mention that we are hiring a content writer. If you are somebody who likes to write technical material about software engineering, send me an email. You can be a computer science student. You can be somebody who doesn't know anything about software engineering other than what you've heard on Software Engineering Daily. We're also hiring an operations lead, and both of these roles are technical, The operations lead will help you understand more about how podcasting works and help us grow the show. Both of these roles are part-time positions, but you'll be working closely with me and Erica. And if you're interested in working with us, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Also, we're going to be at Amazon Web Services reInvent Las Vegas on December 4th, Wednesday. We're having a meetup at reInvent, and you can check out that meetup and sign up for it by looking in the link in the show notes and RSVPing. I would love to see you there. Today's sponsor is Datadog, a scalable monitoring and analytics platform that unifies metrics, logs, traces, and more. Use Datadog's advanced features to monitor and manage SLO performance in real time. Visualize all your SLOs in one place. Easily search, filter, and sort SLOs and share key information with detailed, intuitive dashboards. Plus, Datadog automatically calculates and displays your error budget so that you can see your progress at a glance. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com datadog and sign up for a free 14-day trial, and you will also get a complimentary t-shirt from Datadog. Just go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash datadog. Sign up 
and get that free t-shirt. Kartik and Sid, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff, for having us. Thanks. I'd like to get into talking about distributed SQL databases eventually, but in order to get us there, I'd like to first start by talking about data in a broader context and how data has evolved over the last 12 or 13 years. I think there are some specific areas that exist along the timeline of data over the last 13 years that got us to the point where we are today. And these are things like Hadoop, the Dynamo paper, Cassandra, Kafka, Spark. And then today, we're at this time where everybody's building on the cloud, and we have a suite of distributed SQL databases that people are choosing from. People need a distributed SQL database to provide consistent transactions, and we'll get there. But you guys both have plenty of history in the data world. Give me your perspective on the last 13 years. How did we get to where we are today? Yeah, that's a great question, Jeff. Okay, so like as a by way of a quick background, I was at Facebook like about 10, 12 years ago in 2007. So that's like kind of hits the time frame and have seen the evolution of databases both in the market and at Facebook, like the data technologies at Facebook over the time, right? So I'm just going to use that as a cue and talk about it. So in the beginning, there were monolithic SQL databases, right? Like they were the only database. They were massively popular. They let you do a variety of queries. Now, fast forward a few years, uh, what you saw was data was exploding. The amount of data was getting larger than what a single machine could hold. And so people started splitting their data or sharding it and putting it across multiple SQL databases. Now, forward a little more, and you got file systems like Hadoop, uh, which could store massive amounts of data. And the world also saw the rise of certain types of applications, like time series applications, et cetera, where you actually had to store and scale a lot, like event data or time series data. So naturally, it meant more SQL databases and more sharding and dealing with more of how to reshard databases and scale them and handle failures. Right. So this pattern was so repeatable that no SQL databases were born. Right. They said, like, hey, if you're sharding data data across SQL databases, you're giving up on transactionality anyway. You're trying to actually do some sort of sharding, failover, replication, and that's what went into NoSQL. And the type of workloads then actually did not require strong consistency in transactions because a lot of the event data does not. And so that's the design point those databases choose chose to build to, right? Now, the Dynamo paper, as you mentioned, is a landmark because it represented the first time a database was built cloud native, right? And it happened to be a NoSQL database that is built cloud native. It was obviously to power the high throughput uh, cart, shopping cart use case of Amazon. And Amazon felt like, hey, this would be useful for a lot of people for a lot of use cases, right? So that's what Dynamo represents. Now, if you fast forward a little more, you see that the newer age databases that are SQL databases and cloud native started appearing, right? Like with things like Google Spanner and Amazon's Aurora, what these guys do is they actually replicate their data over a set of machines. They give you strong consistency and transactions, and they're able to scale and move data across geographies, but each to a varying degree of functionality, right? So that leads us to today where 
predominant number of apps that are being built for the cloud and for things like Kubernetes, which essentially converts wh whatever you run it on to a cloud-native setup, right? And so they have some demands of databases, but people still love SQL. So distributed SQL get, is, is kind of born, like at least from my perspective, where such applications meet the cloud, right? So the uh, transactional applications meet a true cloud-like infrastructure, which requires resilience, scale, and geographic distribution. Okay. Well, with that said, describe what an engineering team wants out of a distributed SQL database today. Great question. So an engineering team today is tasked with building more features, right? Like we can simplify it to that. Whether it is a new application, a new feature in an existing application, a new microservice, or a completely new way of reaching new customers, right? Like, what are examples? Like, Amazon has brought to us such an all-pervasive and memorable shopping experience that we even forget that it was only five or 10 years ago when none of that stuff exists. I actually remember going to Barnes & Noble to read books, and now none of that stuff exists because everybody just orders off of Amazon, right? How did such a compelling experience come to be? It's because it's a constant stream of new applications, features, discovery, like ability to track where your, uh, like your shipping goes on, ability to return your shipping, ability to read reviews, so on and so forth. Every one of these features puts a, like a demand on the engineering team, and that means they have to come up with an architecture that makes it work. Now, the architecture goes in different parts. It goes in, what do I use to build my app, right? The app framework. What do I use as a database to store the data inside? And where do I run this, right? Cloud, Kubernetes, where do I run this, right? Now, if you look at all of these applications over time, like, and this is not by no means limited to Amazon, because if the rest of the retail industry does not do this, Amazon's going to disrupt all of them and take their business, right? And we're seeing that happen in real time. And this is happening not just in retail, it's happening in all the other verticals as well. So they're thinking, okay, what are the popular frameworks to build scalable, massive applications? Because if they're not successful, you just wean them away. But if they are successful, you don't want to fail because a lot of users came to your site to use your service. So they start gravitating towards, specifically for databases, those that can give them flexibility of queries, which is proven so far to be SQL. Like SQL is the standard for flexibility of queries. Like no SQL is pretty limiting on that side. They want resilience which means that, hey, my machine failed. Sorry, I couldn't serve you your request and you couldn't place your order is no longer acceptable. Like machine failures must be handled in real time. So ultra resilience. More people ordered. So sorry, I couldn't take your order is no longer acceptable because that's a sign of success. You want to be able to scale massively and quickly. And yeah, you're in Europe and I have my data center hosted in the US. So sorry, your order is going to take a long time to place. Is also not an acceptable answer. So you want geographic distribution. So people get instant, uh, you know, the, the feel of instant reaction. And uh, Google has a well-known study where this is very important, right? So these are table stakes. Absolutely important. But people are deploying all of this in the cloud and in multiple clouds at that, sometimes in the private data center, but want it to look like a cloud. So deploying in Kubernetes, deploying across multiple clouds is becoming very important. And because it's the cloud, you have noisy neighbor problems, you have all sorts of failures coming at you. You want low latency. You want it to be high performance and low latency. And finally, because you want the flexibility to do all this, people are looking at open source. So we're seeing all of these trends happen. Now, we're talking about building databases for actual customers. So 
Different customers have different applications. Different applications have different read patterns and write patterns. You might have applications that make a ton of writes in a time series kind of situation. And all those writes, maybe they only get read once and then they get rolled up into an aggregation and then they get thrown out. You might have applications where a bunch of users are requesting rides in a ride sharing service and it's just highly important transactions that you never want to lose, but there are perhaps not that many of them and they're not happening too, too frequently. You might have applications where user accounts just frequently get accessed by a single row. My point is just that there are different read patterns and different write patterns. And what I'd like to get from you is how do different read and write patterns affect the choice of a database that I should be making for my application? Okay, so this is a great question and is actually quite fundamental in the world of databases. The clear line that divides it is whether a user is interacting with the database or not, or a user-like response is needed, which is, should the reads be real-time, right? So if I ask you a question and I need the answer really quickly, that constitutes what is called an OLTP database, an online transaction processing database. If I ask you a question that is complex and that needs you to analyze a lot of data and you get back to me, like say, even in a couple of hours, but that itself is a difficult feat because there's just so much data out there, this constitutes a warehouse pattern and these are called OLAP databases, right? So OLTP and OLAP is a clear split in uh, access patterns of applications. Like Yugabyte DB and all of the SQL databases, we are t- SQL databases in general actually address both sides of the spectrum, right? There are certain types of SQL databases really suited towards OLAP. Like for example, examples of these would be like uh, Snowflake, Redshift, etc. A bunch of, uh, and like in the in the non-cloud native world, there'd they'd be like, there's a lot of databases like Teradata and there'd be a lot of these type of databases that do that. On the OLTP side, again, there are clearly databases that are very good at answering questions quickly. Examples of these would be our Google Spanner, Amazon Aurora, and so on. Some databases have had the luxury of time and incredible amount of engineering, so they can actually do well on both sides. An example of this would be Oracle, right? It actually does both sides of the spectrum well because so many features have gone in. Now, in OLTP bucket, like each one, the trade-offs are different. If you have a lot of writes and you want to analyze most of the data, obviously you go to OLAP. Now, we're going to focus on OLTP databases because that's what new applications typically need, right? On the OLTP side, you have write-scalable databases and read-scalable, right? Read-scalability in databases is in the world of distributed databases is achieved typically by adding more machines, right? You just increase the number of CPUs available to you and you can now serve more queries. But the expectation here is that you, your, your queries are not all on a single row or a very, very small number of rows, right? That's called the hot row problem. The expectation is it's over a reasonable set of rows and you're able to scale the aggregate CPUs needed, right? If you have a single row or a very small set of rows being read over and over again, the dominant pattern to solve that problem is to have a lot of caches, replica of of this data in a lot of caches, and you serve it from these caches so that you increase the number of caches, which keep data only in memory in order to increase your read throughput of the few rows. Now on the right side, there is no free lunch. 
increasingly, OLTP databases have to handle the right scalability, right? And that's what brings up this whole thing about distributed SQL. Whatever I said about the read side is true, whether you're a distributed database or a monolithic database, it doesn't matter. The concepts are similar. A monolithic database, you can only increase the size of the machine. A distributed database, you can increase the number of machines, right? That's the only trade-off. On the right side, you just have to have more machines in order to process more writes. Otherwise, you have to give up on your consistency or something else in your application, like batching it or dropping data or rolling up or so on and so forth, right? So at that point, a distributed database becomes a must, right? And the new paradigm that we see coming in with geographic distribution is the ability to do reads from the nearest data center or region so that you can serve your users quickly because some subset of data can actually be served a little stale, but with low read latencies. So there's a number of branches in the tree, but I think the simplest way to think about it is what is the app trying to achieve? And if it falls inside, there is a lot of data that needs read and write scale, then a distributed SQL database is great. If there are a few rows that need read or writes happening over and over again, a cache or some other technique is often required. Now we've had distributed SQL databases for a long time, we have databases that I assumed had the read and write scalability properties that I need, but presumably you see some deficiency in the market. There must be some aspects of the read and write characteristics of the existing distributed SQL databases that you find insufficient. What are the use cases that when you're building Yugabyte, you think you can improve on? Yeah, precise question. Great. So the existing distributed SQL databases, like the, the, the two I'd like to refer to, are first uh, Amazon Aurora and second Google Span, right? And they both have an interesting paradigm trade-off, architectural trade-off in what they did, right? Amazon Aurora is a 100% SQL features compliant, right? It supports Postgres, all of Postgres, and all of MySQL. So anything you run there, you can run here. It gives you all the RDBMS features. It does have high availability, which means if a node fails, another can quickly take its spot. However, it cannot do horizontal write scaling. What that means is you can make this node bigger, but exactly one node of Amazon Aurora can take writes with the guarantee that data is consistent, right? That's, that's just the way Amazon Aurora is designed. Now, Google Spanner on the other side does not have all the RDBMS features. For example, it does not support things like foreign keys, stored procedures, triggers. It doesn't support a bunch of that stuff, right? So it gives up, it creates its own SQL language. But it is highly available, like just like Aurora. So a failure happens, you're not affected. But unlike Aurora, it is horizontally write scalable. That means you need to take more writes, you can add more machines. You'd be able to expand the capacity of this logical database, which is comprised of multiple machines, simply by adding more machines. Because Google Spanner can send subset of writes to a set of machines, so to each machine. So in aggregate, they do more work. Now, with Yugabyte, what we noticed, like, and we had the luxury of starting after both of these databases. So it was obviously, it was our job to do the research and you know take the best learnings from them. So what we saw was that Aurora was insanely popular because it supported everything in SQL, every, all the features, right? I think these are probably not official numbers, but like it looks like Aurora might have a run rate of around $2 billion plus in annual revenue, right? So which is an impressive achievement. 
So with Yugabyte, we said like absolutely 100% SQL, everything has to get supported. That's a must. And we said like if we are building the database for the cloud, like and this is the future of all applications, then horizontal write scalability is a must. Obviously, both these databases are highly available and fault tolerant, so that just goes in without saying. So we picked those three things as some of the core vectors. So in turn, Yugabyte supports 100% Postgres features and is also horizontally write scalable. So 100% Postgres features like Amazon Aurora, uh, also horizontally write scalable like Google Spanner, and highly available and fault tolerant like both, right? Now, on top of this, so that's the type of applications that we're trying to go after. Like you want all the RDBMS features, you want write scale. Now, on top of that, what we noticed was like these are great cloud vendor offerings, but a lot of people over time, a lot of companies are now gravitating to multi-cloud models. And this could be because they have app A run in one cloud and app B run in another, or they have customers wanting them to run in different clouds, like this happens in retail, for example, or uh, they have like acquired companies which run in different clouds, or maybe they're subject to GDPR like uh, and compliance regulations, which force them to run in different clouds and different companies or like they just want to run it natively in Kubernetes, inside Kubernetes in their own data center. So there's a number of reasons why you would want databases that are cloud independent, right? And so making it a 100% open source and the without any external dependency so it can run anywhere is the other big thing that we offer. As a programmer, you think in objects. With MongoDB, so does your database. MongoDB is the most popular document-based database built for modern application developers and the cloud era. Millions of developers use MongoDB to power the world's most innovative products and services, from cryptocurrency to online gaming, IoT, and more. Try MongoDB today with Atlas, the global cloud database service that runs on AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud. Configure, deploy, and connect to your database in just a few minutes. Check it out at mongodb.com slash atlas. That's mongodb.com slash atlas. Thank you to MongoDB for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Okay, so if I understand correctly, you said the primary distributed SQL databases on the market that people are picking for a globally distributed database are Amazon Aurora, which has the deficiency of not being horizontally write scalable, meaning only a single node can accept writes at a single time. So for example, a massively multiplayer online game would probably not work great on Aurora because you've got all these state synchronization that you need to be done. And if you're only accepting writes on a single database node, that's not going to give you enough throughput to synchronize a beautiful widespread game experience. So that's like the weak point of Amazon Aurora that you're going to try to attack. And then on the spanner side of things, the spanner API is its own thing. And you want to try to build a database that has Postgres compliance because that'll be an easier on-ramp for people. Do I understand correctly the the weak points of the globally distributed SQL databases that you're going to try to compete with? Yes, that's absolutely right. So as a result, our core is uh, Spanner-inspired, 
And the API is Postgres 11.2, which is like one of the most recent releases of Postgres. So from the competitive point of view, what happens if, you know, Aurora just solves horizontal write scalability? Yeah, I can take that, Jeff. Actually, they have been trying to. They are very, very cognizant of the fact that not having horizontal write scalability hurts applications that become so much successful once they are on on Aurora. So recently, Aurora introduced a multi-master configuration for Aurora MySQL, which is currently only two write nodes uh, available, right? But the challenge is that it's 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 what is known as multi-master architecture as opposed to Spanner and Yugabyte DB's auto-sharded architecture. Multi-master, each node contains 100% of the data. As a result, if you write to the same, you can write to the same row on both the nodes and that will lead to internal conflicts and deadlock errors, which the application now has to ha- handle. So instead of solving the core problem, we believe what Aurora is doing is a incremental step forward, but that incremental step then puts the onus on the application development and, and engineering to handle all the errors and conflicts that come by. That's one. Secondly, this multi-master architecture is not the right architecture for uh, fully global deployments where you want a portion of the data to be automatically partitioned into the region that is nearby to the users for the GDPR and the low latency use cases, right? So in, in both cases, you know, there is an, I would say, attempt, but it hasn't gone far to make a dent in the developer experience. As any any project, right, like the, there's got to be some competitive modes, right? Like, and some of these modes are time to implement features and the other modes are just around uh, mindshare and use of usage, right? Like, so it's just these two, right? Like pretty much any project has these. So to us, like building a core that is right scalable with transactional consistency is a strong mode. It's deep IP in terms of how long it takes to implement and make it production ready and actually perform it. And so we have done a lot of that work. Um, Obviously, the other mode will be on the adoption side where like this entire database is available to you in the uh, 100% open source, like Apache 2.0 license. And we offer software that makes it very easy to convert into a managed service. And we already have a number of users using it at fairly large scale. So assuming we know what we're doing, this will seem very compelling to the user of today, right? So and that forms the moat. And so they start liking the software, the fact that you know we're 100% open source and using more, and that, that drives the growth. So the goals are also slightly different for the two companies. Like if you think about what Amazon's trying to do, they're trying to solve how to make Amazon an easier cloud for people to build it. And what are we trying to do? We are trying to build a the default database for the cloud, irrespective of which cloud that is. So the feature set also, I guess, will go accordingly, right? So I presume that it would be equally difficult, at least for Google, to build a Postgres-compliant API on top of Spanner. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, that also represents the other part of our IP. So it is actually significantly non-trivial to map what... So we had to surgically remove the lower half of Postgres, which wrote to a single node, and map that on top of a distributed store that we have, which is Google Spanner-like. So putting those two together is also a significant 
time moat and and obviously the the open source nature and the the you know best database for the cloud irrespective of the cloud that still stays right for us and so this you ended up doing a source available license right so so this is not something aws can potentially like grab from your repo and spin up themselves no this is the database is not is is 100% open source so aws can grab our database and run it and it's completely fine. The source available part is like effectively Aurora is a managed service, but it offers MySQL and Postgres. AWS took MySQL and Postgres as databases and made changes and offered it up as a service. Our source available license is only the portion that takes the open source Yugabyte database and converts it into a managed service. Right. And unlike Aurora, where Amazon owns everything, we ship our software to convert a any user's like infrastructure into a database as a service so that they can run their own private database as a service. Right. That's what we do. That portion is source available. I think the question you're trying to allude to is what stops any of these clouds or specifically Amazon from taking the software and running it. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Great question. So we see it this way. If you take, uh, like, before I even go into our reasoning, if you take how things have played out in the world, both MongoDB and Elastic, like Elastic being the more applicable example here, are or were 100% open source, and MongoDB made changes to protect themselves, um, and Elastic made some portion of its software closed, right? Like, it kept the majority of its day, of its offering completely Apache 2.0 and made some features proprietary, whereas MongoDB went the other way and made the bulk majority of its database proprietary so that a cloud provider could not take it. Now, let's look at the results, right? Amazon offers both Elastic and Mongo, so closing out the code base did not really help because they still have that service. I mean, and Mongo becoming popular, it's not just Amazon. Azure's Cosmos DB also offers a MongoDB database uh, API. So it's multiple cloud vendors that are offering it. And on the in the Elastic side, all of the closed features, Amazon rebuilt those features and put them out into a different repo, which they said is the true open source Elastic repo. Now, it's quite what that means or whatever. But, but nevertheless, we still see MongoDB and Elastic as $8 billion companies, right? They really haven't gotten squished and they seem to be doing perfectly fine. All of the heartache aside, like they could be doing better, I guess, but they're still doing fine. So our reasoning and takeaway, and we're a database born squarely in the era when the cloud was is was dominant, right? Like we weren't built before the cloud and trying to figure out like MongoDB or Elastic. We we grew in the cloud era. And what we realized is that there are a lot of people running non-critical use cases and in open source software, they're never going to pay. They're never going to pay anybody, right? And then there's people running maybe very minor or semi-critical use cases. They may care more about the infrastructure cost and all of that stuff than about the database itself. I mean, they don't represent the lion's share of revenue, but there's some revenue and they may come to us. They may go to Amazon. That's fine. But the most important segment is the set of guys building their business and business critical applications on top of it, of our database, like you could buy deep. Right. And those yeah. guys would probably trust us as the makers of the database. Exactly. And building a database for mission critical, those are the guys we want to be talking to and monetizing as a business. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's that uh, is such a good summary of why this whole... <laughs> 
relicensing stuff is so hilarious. <laughs> it's so so hilarious. Maybe it gets into different gradations when you're at like I mean the the way you broke down the market I think is is broadly true, but it's it's maybe a little bit crude because probably when you have an open source project that's as popular as Kafka or Elastic or Mongo, there's more gradations of the population. Absolutely. I think it's also fair to be fair to them. The total percentage of revenue may not be large, but the total value of the revenue may still be a, a relatively big number, right? And so them going after that is is fair. And them asking the question, like, you know, them having worked so hard to build this, should they get it or not? Like, it's it's a different type of a question. I think the point is, over the longer term, it should be possible for a database maker to make enough valuable features in the database to retain their audience. Yes. It's what keeps them honest. And yes. cloud vendors should never be able to equalize that unless they're also a database maker. I know. I know. It's like, that's the crazy thing. It's like, come, like you, look at, you look at Elastic. It's like, the thing I always wonder is like, you're building a search engine. Like, Google still has not solved search. And you really feel the need to take a licensing approach to maintain the defensibility of your search engine. Like, can't you just out-feature Amazon? Like, I don't know. It just, I mean, that's what you're saying, right? Like, yeah, basically, I, if you're a database yeah. provider, like, you have to build a platform around your database. Yep. Like, you have to build a database platform, meaning, like, added services, whatever, like, serverless things. Like, MongoDB, the MongoDB company has built Stitch. They've built MongoDB Atlas, which are just better ways of interfacing with your database or added ways of interfacing with your database, different ways of interfacing with your database with added developer experience. You know, everybody knows like Amazon, you know, they're they're great at offering you like the really wide buffet of different developer products, but developer experience in any one of those particular products may, <laughs> may be highly variable. And so, you know, there's certainly opportunity for, for these different database providers to offer experience that is, that is highly designed for for, for their particular data product, which it sounds like that's what you're doing. That's what the the Yogabyte, Yogabyte platform, that's the thing that's just source available? Yes, that's right. Yes, it's the stuff that you could do yourself, but it's just a lot of work and it's headache for you to make sure you got right and you don't want to deal with the consequences of not getting it right, but it's, it, it's, not, it's convenience more than IP. Like what? What kind of stuff? Like, for example, people that want to install it, like, say, want to do nightly backups, right? Like, so they have to back up this distributed database, like, as a cluster. So you have a bunch of machines that host one cluster. You may have multiple of these clusters, and you want to make sure you have nightly backups. And if your backup ever failed to happen, you want to get an alert or, like, you want to know when some machine is running slow or if you're running close to capacity or like a number of other things, right? Like you may want to put in like your security features, like a, like TLS encryption and encryption at rest with certificates from like a KMS store. Like a bunch of the stuff that you would have to actually hire people and get code around and verify it's right. Is that valuable or is it just valuable that you get, like you just pay for it and use that as a platform? So, Got it. Right? So that said, the backups itself, like the ability to take a backup is free. It's there. You can do it. But do you really want to schedule that every day and put that, copy that out to say an S3 and make sure that the restore works and make sure that you've put it in the right format, in the right location and deleted the backup if it's like 30 days old? Like all of this stuff is just work that may not be worth the time of a business. You know, in terms of the go-to-market strategy, like... Okay, you've outlined 
where the opportunity is for Yugabyte. Go-to-market is still really hard because you have to find the person at the organization, at a given organization, that is having that very specific set of distributed database problems, and then you have to convince them to work with your database instead of trusting AWS, which everybody trusts, or trusting Google, which most people trust, and you know perhaps sacrificing some of the features that they want. How do you win the customer in that kind of go-to-market environment? Yeah, that's the meat of the question, right? So for us, we are a firm believer in the power of open source. Open source is does multiple things. Firstly, it gives you knowledge, full transparency of exactly what you're adopting, what its strengths are, what its weaknesses are, what are the features that are in progress, everything, right? And you get to partake as a community in changing the roadmap or the feature set, asking for new features, even building some of the features yourself if you really need it in a pinch, right? So so in that sense, you benefit from what others have fixed and others benefit from what you fix. So overall, that is a powerful thing in itself, right? That's the first thing. Now, the second thing is it is very easy for people to experience Yugabyte as an open source product, right? So it's very easy to download it, try it. You can try it on your laptop. You can try it on Kubernetes. You can try it in the cloud, et cetera, et cetera, right? And we are seeing the best. And the third piece is us trying to solve some of these hard, frontier, bleeding edge problems in the cloud. Like we write a lot about it. And our, our blog is something like, we're very proud of, but a lot of our users come and tell us that they find a ton of valuable information in there. So, And we do a bunch of things to educate users as to the best way to build things in the cloud. And um, our knowledge is rooted from practical experience because we were some of the key people like building or supporting the growth of Facebook in the, on the database side, like from 2007 through 2013, right? Like so we were some of the people in, in amongst a bunch of others, an incredibly talented team, right? And so our takeaway from that growth was what should people be thinking about? What are the features that they would need? What would they see? two years from now, five years from now, so on and so forth, right? Because we feel like we've seen a bunch of this journey before. And we were also the team that ran the database in production. So what are the tricks and things they should look for there? So a lot of that comes together in our writing that people really love and come to us. So this shows in terms of the amount of growth, like our uh, community growth has been explosive. Like we've grown more than 10x in a number of different dimensions in our community, like and people just over the last year. And uh, we have uh, on the mission critical data app side we have a number of customers like paid customers that are running us for like enormous workloads like we have some of these guys come and talk at our first uh, user conference they came in like one of the one of our customers even we didn't know the numbers but we were blown away plume one of our customers is doing 27 billion operations per day on yugabyte right and all of this is mission critical like and there's we have like about four customers now that are doing over a billion operations per day. So, And we're, we're pretty proud of, of that achievement. And finally, when people start looking at open source packages, they look at a number of factors, right? They look at if the license is good, if there's enough activity, if the maintainers of the project are very responsive. Like I think all of this, I, I think Matt Ese probably just recently wrote in a new stack article. But anyway, so we do a bunch of that stuff and it just happens by itself, right? Like building an open source community and an open source project just ends up working out that way. So we feel these are some of the differentiators. The final thing I will say is that there is like 
I, I think it's funny, even just over the years of Yugabyte as a company and talking to so many enterprise customers, we started in 2016 when most of the companies told us they weren't sure about their cloud and the roadmap or our architecture. They just weren't sure how it would turn out. 2017, a lot of lift and shifts into the cloud. I'm just going to move some stuff into the cloud. 2018, they're like, you know what? That doesn't really work. I need to build an app that is cloud native to get better ROI. Now, 2019, like multi-cloud is firmly in there. Hybrid cloud, like on-premise deployments that are cloud native, Kubernetes, like these are firmly happening, right? So we feel like there is... So the, the, while the go-to-market looks hard, like from the outside, like when you go in and start peeling the layers of the onion, there, there are good ways to make impact. I love software architecture. Software architecture is the high-level perspective of how to build software systems. Much of Software Engineering Daily is about software architecture, and if you're interested in software architecture, there's no better place to go to discuss and learn about software architecture than the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference, which is coming to New York February 23rd through 26th of 2020. If you are interested in software architecture, you can go to O'ReillySACon.com slash SEDaily. That link is in the show notes, and you can get 20% off your ticket to the Software Architecture Conference. The O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference is a great place to learn about the high-level perspectives and the implementation details of microservices, cloud computing, serverless, and also systems like machine learning and analytics. If you've been listening to Software Engineering Daily for a while, you know that these systems are hard to build. And they take engineering details at both the high level and at the low level. Whether you're a seasoned architect or an engineer that is just curious about software architecture and maybe you want to become a software architect, you can check out the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference at O'ReillySACon.com slash SEDaily. Use the discount code SE20 and get 20% off your ticket. There are lots of reasons to go to the Software Architecture Conference. There's networking opportunities. There are plenty of talks and training opportunities. And you can get 20% off by going to O'ReillySACon.com slash SEDaily and entering discount code SE20. I've been going to O'Reilly conferences for years, and I don't see myself stopping anytime soon because they're just a great way to learn and meet people. So check it out, and thanks to O'Reilly for being a longtime sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. So the most brutal competition that I've covered in Software Engineering Daily has been the container orchestration wars, and oh, yeah. that was that was this real vicious essentially zero-sum <laughs> battle <Yeah. laughs> for supremacy of the container orchestrator. And I just remember like asking people, okay, like HashiCorp Nomad, Kubernetes, Mesos, Docker Swarm, like give me the side-by-side -side comparison. And it was always just like, well, uh, you know, this one does this and this one does that. And then you go talk to somebody else and they're like, oh, no, 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 that's not right. This one does this and this one does that. And and I'm like, okay, well, I have no idea which one's going to win. And then, you know, of course, the Google one won. 
Now, that was a winner-take-all environment, and there are very obvious network effects that uh, we can see in, in today's version of Kubernetes. Even back then, it felt like there was going to be a winner-take-all dynamic because you had all these enterprises that were basically biding their time. Nobody was was picking a container orchestrator, like for the banks. The banks were all saying, like, we're not going to pick any of these things because we're just going to wait to see which one wins. And then Amazon made this very savvy decision to build ECS, which was like a proprietary thing that like nobody knows what it was under the hood, or I'm sure somebody knows, but maybe it was Mesos under the hood, but who knows? The rebranding exercise was actually really good for convincing some customers to use it. But in any case, the the the, the container orchestrator wars was winner take all. It seems like maybe that could happen in open source distributed SQL databases, but maybe not. Yeah, so I'll color this with a couple of different incidents and maybe let you uh, <laughs> make the decision on or your opinion right on that. So firstly, like the thing about orchestration and IaaS or any of these things where is that they're just not sticky, right? Like think about like let's think about the origin of IaaS, right? It started out from running stuff on a machine on its local disk, right? Pretty soon it moved to running the same stuff on a machine, but on a remote disk, like a SAN, right? You know, NetApp or one of those things. Then it moved from running stuff on the same remote disk, but onto a VM, right? Then it moved from the VM to a container. Now, a single container was not enough, so there's a bunch of containers, and now you need to orchestrate them, right? And if you even look at, like, so at different points, like, you see that it is easier, relatively speaking, like, in some sense of, of the word, of the term, to change the IaaS layer. However, you still see mainframes and databases on mainframes, right? Like, you still see those still around, right? Like, it's a thing because we're fighting it sometimes. Like, we don't even know, I don't know, like, Throughout my entire education, I know very little about mainframes. I've never dealt with them too much, but I'm having to learn more about them now than I ever did collectively in my entire career. That's because mainframe databases are still a thing. Now, Oracle came after mainframe databases. Now, that is still a thing. Uh, SQL Server came after Oracle, still a thing. MySQL and Postgres, still things. And I'm guessing the rest of the guys are still going to be things. That's because data has incredible gravity. And OLTP mission critical data is like a black hole. It has so much gravity, it's just tough to move. And if it does its job right, like, because data is just growing, right? The, the age we are in is exploding in amounts of data. Like, I remember, like, again, back to the, the Facebook days, I remember that the amount of data we were generating as a company for OLTP applications was like, exponential from in those growth years, right? And I'm sure it's still the case. I'm, st I'm sure that the data rate is just simply multiplying even at this point, right? And not talking about OLAP data, like OLAP data is used to drive the business. So in OLAP, there's an interesting phenomenon where you don't want your spend to exceed what you earn because you can always collect a ton of data, right? That you want to analyze. But if the amount of money you're spending to analyze your data to run your business better actually costs more than what you make from your business, that's a bad idea. But OLTP data is a close to the ground signal of your business growing. So you absolutely want to spend for OLTP data, right? So so at least that's that's the roundabout narrative of saying this field is a little different. And, and just uh, one, one more pointer. Uh, if we talk to, you know, the Fortune 2000, when it comes to OLTP data and databases, I think they will tell you that they would not like a winner-take-all uh, scenario to be created again because they want the ability to change their database architecture if so the need 
arises rather than you know recreate more or less oracle's hegemony again in the modern cloud right even you know i, I would say oracle hegemony is was still threatened by sql server by db2 by mysql by postgres but there is clearly one leader and there are a bunch of others in there so in in the new world we believe it is not about a winner take all markets it's more about ensuring that you become the trusted partner for those engineering teams as they are growing mm. so the, but the winner take all phenomenon i guess in the database layer is more the api like post maybe postgres is the winner that's right yes that is right absolutely yes i think that is a very true in fact uh, as a database as a company that makes databases we get this question most often compared to all the other questions which is why the hell are you guys building another database in 2016 17 18 19 whatever right so and you're like no um, no 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 I it's an architecture it's not a database <laughs> Exactly. So that's what we tell them. It's like, what you really mean is, did we create a new database API? And we tell them, no, we did not. And they're like, oh, thank God. Okay, what do you really do? And then we tell them, look, you have this API, but you cannot run it in the cloud. You have to do all this work to run it in the cloud. How about we give you the entirety of that API along with some enhancements because you need those to run in the cloud, right? And they're like, oh, this is awesome. This is great, right? So I think that's the, the different. I think you, you you hit the nail on the so, head. Though. So the Citus, Citus Data, the Postgres, I mean, that, I thought that was Postgres for the cloud. It got acquired by Microsoft. What did they do differently than your approach? Yeah, so it, like, it's like, I think to explain it in the simplest terms, right? So Citus kept the entire Postgres database, and then they made a layer of software above, which is an aggregator that sends data to these sub-databases underneath. So you put your data in and you tell them how to shard it, and they will take your data and shard it accordingly in those sub-Postgres databases inside. And you can now do you can now run this thing as a sharded scalable database, right? Um, however, this is like firstly, the replication underneath is still. Um, asynchronous, which means if a random node dies, then you would have to promote another node to take its place and you have lost some data. Like it's unclear how much data or what type of data you have lost. Like that, that's always unclear, right? And that's been the Achilles heel of most RDBMSs. That is still retained. In Yugabyte, the replication uses a consensus protocol with, with Raft, right? It uses Raft underneath as the way to replicate, which means if you lose a node out there, there's still a guarantee that you don't lose any data. So that's the first difference. Uh, the second difference is between these isolated pools of databases, like you, if you're doing a transaction or you're doing a join, that's going to be either not supported or inefficient, depending on exactly what you do. In Yugabyte, the, the sharding is transparent. It happens under the hood. So you can deal with this entire set of machines as a single logical database, as opposed to having to know a little bit more about the internals. Right. That's the second thing, like uh, going back to the data loss point, just want to point out that, like, I, I mean, I, I don't know the exact year that Citus was started, but I think it was in the early days of the cloud. But if you think about what is one of the like, in, in fact, we had this incident, like I think three days ago with one of our paying customers, like uh, one of the Amazon zones went out, like there was an outage, right? Network outage, they, you couldn't reach it. But they had deployed Yugabyte across these three zones, right? And data was synchronously replicated and they were able to survive the failure of the entire zone without any data loss, right? Nothing, no problem. But in the case of something like Citus, that would 
be much more complicated. You'd have to figure out like either the app has to absorb the impact of a little bit of recent data being lost, or you'd have to go figure out how to make it all right. Because the data references each other, right? And if you just lose a couple of references, it, it becomes complicated. Makes sense. So as we begin to wind down, I guess I'd like to get a little bit more reflection on the past and prediction about the future. So Kartik, you mentioned that you worked at Facebook for five and a half years. Sid, you were at Oracle for five years. So you guys have a lot of perspective on the past and future of databases. So Oracle, I would kind of think of as really, really good insights into the past of of when databases were extremely consolidated and probably plenty of lessons for how to form a good database strategy. I'm sure you learned those things at the, uh, the, the hegemon. And Facebook, Kartik, I'm sure you have a lot of predictions about where the future of data is going to lie because, you know, I've done a lot of interviews with Facebook, ex-Facebook engineers, and the data requirements for Facebook, they're just crazy. Like, and very different, honestly, like from what I can tell, than what a lot of applications have requirements for today. So like, you know, what Facebook was experiencing, you know, six, seven years ago, it's like the data volume, the level of synchronicity that maybe you'll like the average database will need in five years or something. So maybe Facebook sees things like 10 years ahead. And and I mean, a lot of these at scale companies see this kind of stuff. So I just love to get each of your perspectives on, you know, kind of what lessons you took away from your careers up to this point. And just give me some, some perspective on where you think the database market is headed. Okay, maybe I'll go first. So, yes, I think uh, you precisely put it that, like, at least for me, I do see Facebook as being ahead of the, uh, or, or any of these hyperscales as being about a decade ahead of the general enterprise. Like, it's actually so funny for me that it's like, uh, it, it, at Facebook, like, we built something called Tupperware. Um, it is our own uh, orchestration engine. And now there's Kubernetes, which is popular in the world. At Facebook, like, we had reorganized ourselves into I mean, we didn't have a better term, but nearby data centers and far away data centers. And now we have zones and regions, you know, like, uh, like I, I could go on. Like, I think microservices was pretty similar, like any number of things, right? Like, so on the database side, I think it has been an interesting evolution. And I, I think the reason we started the company is actually to build whatever Facebook was facing, like as the database problem, uh, to bring that to the enterprise market. So that's really where the company comes in. And that is problems of being able to survive across zones. So, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll say this, maybe we have time. I'll just say this uh, interesting incident. Like I used to be a part of the HBase team. We were the team that both built HBase features and ran it in production. There were times like we were going for five nines of efficiency. And there were times when like, for example, a mistaken like a cable that gets pulled out, takes out a bunch of machines, like all sorts of stuff would happen. And uh, we were still inching our way close to five nines, but that's when we realized that with billions and billions of users or requests coming in, uh, you could fail a few million for a long time. And when you divide it, you still get a very small number and you're okay. You're still five nines. That's great, right? But the reality is there's millions of people whose requests are failing and that's not good, right? So that's when we realized that the real number is the fraction of requests that come in that should fail. Like you should have a very, very small number of requests fail, right? And that required a completely different thinking. And that's when we were, we started thinking about multi-zone deployments and that kind of stuff, right? And so we see that 
that is slowly starting to happen today. It's not 100% there. So multi-zone, as in use three zones, don't use two. Use three regions, don't use two. So we're seeing that some people are starting to do this, but a lot of people still want to stay with two regions because of other reasons, right? But but we think that in the future, a prediction is that it is going to firmly move towards an odd number of regions so that you can do consensus and hands-off stuff and ensure that there's no data failure and so on. So that's on one side. On the second side, like I, like, I believe that data scale and latencies, like, I mean, this is a part of this is in the thesis of the company, but data scale and, and low latency is going to become a stringent requirement. Like, it's going to just keep increasing. There are, like, for example, 5G is coming up, right? Like, you see that that is going to be enable a new set of applications to come through. Like, like I don't know, like, like I've read about, like, remote surgery and all of this kind of stuff that you can do now. Uh, and, like, even teleconferencing is becoming, like, we're doing, right? Teleconference talking over the distance is becoming common so there's a number of applications that will start coming up where low latency as in say sub 10 millisecond or sub millisecond is all starting to is is going to start getting very important and so will geographic distribution right so like even in the in the remote surgery example you just need the database or whatever it is that you're trying to synchronize and write and do to live across the geographies that the surgeon and the patient are in and not really anywhere else in the world so don't be constrained by where your data center is be constrained by where your data should live right so it's that kind of stuff and it's only getting accelerated by like you know gdpr and all of those type of developments so really feel that like that trend is going to increase and i'll throw out one more thing like is that like it feels like edge data centers kubernetes like which is already becoming de facto but the edge and like things like serverless are going to gain more adoption like i mean like unlike what people say i don't subscribe that everything can be done by serverless that's kind of a little crazy but there are clear use cases where it can make life easier. So a lot of those patterns would start emerging as well. So looking at the database side of things, it starts thinking about it as becoming a a CDN with data, like a data network across the world, like that kind of thing. And you may need very low latency reads sometimes. You may need strong consistency. You may need to invalidate, like that type of a paradigm, but in a language as ubiquitous as SQL. All right. Well, yeah. let's go with Sid now. That was great. So I, I want to add that, I mean, if you look at the Oracle database, it's one of the most amazing pieces of technology that's I would say mankind has ever seen, given how much business critical information is stored and served out of it over the years. Now, the way Oracle built that is through, I, in the original days, it was all about maniacal focus on developer productivity. How do we build a database that makes the life uh, simple for these new age developers who are just starting to build for the internet-based applications and give them all the tools that are that are necessary to get them going, uh, never lose their data, extreme reliability, um, all that baked into to the database. It so happens that, I mean, that sort of led to a little bit of uh, thinking that, you know, that they will never lose that developer. They will never lose that customer and, and user. As a result, innovation has stagnated. But if you look at what the distributed SQL segment is trying to do is essentially take the same ethos of uh, maniacal developer productivity and bring it to the modern cloud. Because the cloud actually changes everything, changes it, it is already evident in Oracle's results. It changes how Oracle is going to make money or not make money in the future. We believe 
that as time progresses, as all these various kinds of applications, users demand from the businesses, cloud as the as the delivery vehicle and the distributed SQL as the database layer is just, you know, gonna happen for sure. Very interesting. Okay. Well, last thing to wind down, you guys both went to UT, right? UT Austin? That's right. Go Longhorn. That's right. You know, I'm, I'm also an alum from there, right? Right. Oh, wow. All right. Yes. Fellow yeah. Longhorn. Yeah. Look at, look at. Where'd, you, where'd you guys do your engineering homework? What building? <laughs> uh, most of the time, Taylor, Taylor Hall. Yeah, Taylor Hall. What basement. You? Basement. Yeah, of basement Taylor of Taylor. Taylor. Oh, yeah. Definitely. You were protected against even a nuclear. Uh, whatever. <laughs> right. it, was, it was actually a nuclear thing, right? Right. And protected from sunlight. Like, Anybody who remembers that, like that was just this crazy yep. subterranean place with really nice Linux boxes. That's right. That's right. <laughs> 3 a.m., 3 p.m., no problem. Looks the same. <laughs> Sid, you were doing EE homework there, right? Uh, I was in oh, you CS. Were CS. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, you, and you guys were both in master's programs. Okay. Yeah, um, right. yeah that's right. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, great memories at Taylor Hall. I just remember, like, you go in there, it's like going into a casino because you just don't have any windows <laughs> and the time just goes just goes by really fast. I remember going down there with like a, a bagged lunch and like a really big thermos of coffee and just spending <laughs> hours and hours. If, if I were to guess right, the assignments were around the corner because that's when I used to do that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. You're totally grinding on it, like hoping not to have to use your last slip day. That's right. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Good memories. We did graduate to ACS uh, Hall uh, in, in the, I, I guess, the last semester or something. The, ACS, the, yeah. the new, new one. But it, I mean, it was new. It, it, it didn't have that that feeling that uh, the feeling of uh, <laughs> you, you didn't bond with it. It, yeah, exactly. it was just uh, you just uh, it was like a rental versus your own home. Yeah. Oh right, like you're are you talking about the uh, like the the portables? There was like a, a set of portables, right? Uh, right. I mean, I think the the ones at the top, top portables. Yeah. portables. Yeah, right. Yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. There's like it, it's funny because then like then they finally built a computer. I mean, well, Gates funded the computer science build. I don't know if that was getting built when you guys were there, but the Gates. Computer science building is just this palatial, gorgeous yes. building yes. of, uh, I mean, yeah. you know, I was lucky enough to take my sweet time in graduating and I was, you know, using the Gates building facilities near the last couple of years. It was gorgeous. Much more beautiful place to, to do your homework last minute. <laughs> That's, yeah, it's fun times good, though. Yeah, good good times. memories. Yeah. Good memories. Okay. Well, well, guys, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Great discussion of distributed SQL and... Uh, I feel much more knowledgeable of the distributed SQL landscape at this point. Thanks for having us, Jeff. It was a great set of questions. Really enjoyed the discussion. Software Engineering Daily reaches 30,000 engineers every weekday and 250,000 engineers every month. If you'd like to sponsor Software Engineering Daily, send us an email sponsor at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Reaching developers and technical audiences is not easy, and we've spent the last four years developing a trusted relationship with our audience. We don't accept every advertiser because we work closely with our advertisers, and we make sure that the product is something that can be useful to our listeners. Developers are always looking to save time and money and developers are happy to purchase products that fulfill this goal. You can send us an email at sponsor at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Even if you're just curious about sponsorships, 
you can feel free to send us an email. We have a variety of sponsorship packages and options. Thanks for listening.